Hey, welcome to the Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kansas. Hey, Peter. Greetings. Later in this episode, you're going to hear Peter speak with me and our colleague Soraya Wintersmith about the time that Soraya and I spent on the campaign trail in New Hampshire with former Massachusetts governors Bill Weld and Deval Patrick. But first, we wanted to tackle what I have taken to calling Rantgate with our colleague Philip Martin, who was at the Martin Luther King Day breakfast when Ayanna Presley gave a very impassioned speech, and then Governor Baker made a comment immediately after that he has been widely decried for making. Philip, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Adam, Peter. So, Philip, as someone who was in the room, can you describe the scene as all this played out. Tell us what it was like. Okay, you already had a room uh, that's a sold-out uh, event, uh, Martin Luther King uh, breakfast. The first time it was sold out in the uh, decades, and it's been going on 50 years now. So you had 1,400, almost 1,500 people in the room, blacks, whites, Latinos, Asians, uh, Native Americans. It was a, a mixed affair. They had already been on their feet for Presley. She had, uh, when she walked in, she received the greatest applause, standing ovation. Um, so, at this point, she was uh, commenting on the issue of black identity, saying there's nothing wrong with, uh, with black identity, uh, and, uh, uh, and goes on to give some impassioned examples. And so, at this point, people are again are on their feet. And then, uh, Governor Baker uh, is asked to opine, and he does, uh, but in opining, he, he says describes what she had just said, this passionate speech, as a rant. So I'm going to interrupt you. Now that you have described it for us in your own words, let's take a listen to what exactly went down. I am so tired of people saying that what is ruining this country is identity politics. No, it isn't. It is hate and white supremacy that is codified through legislation. If we can celebrate the identity of a veteran, if we can celebrate the identity of a survivor of domestic violence, if we can celebrate the identity of someone in the recovery community and say why we need them at the table to make sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to another person again, the solution is representation and there is nothing wrong with identity. I'm sitting here thinking that the mayor made a smart strategic move. <laughs> Can you want sitting to over there. <laughs> Let's switch seats. <laughs> Charlie, the only, the I only thing I can add to that rant, okay, <laughs> is this. It was a little sad talk. <laughs> I say to people all the time that the greatest gift that's come to my wife and to me as a result of this chance we've had to serve has been the opportunity we've had, if only for a few moments at a time, to walk in the shoes of so many different people across the Commonwealth whose life experiences have been different than ours. And that point that the Congresswoman just made about the fact that every life is individual and every life should be celebrated and that there's an identity associated with every life and that that identity needs to be part of the conversation that we have when we make policy and we make decisions. That is absolutely so spot on, I can't even begin uh, to, to, to double or triple down on it. So Philip, you tweeted after the governor made that comment that the governor had seemed to slip in calling 
Presley's comments a rant. And I know some people went after you. I thought a little bit unfairly on Twitter for saying, well, what do you mean he seemed to slip? That's not the right way to characterize it. Why did you use that formulation? I think that's a, it's a really good question. And I said seemed to slip because I put it in context, uh, as you can hear what uh, what he just said. Uh, and, and in context, he seemed to uh, have acknowledged, uh, as he's continuing to speak, that perhaps that wasn't the best use of a term. Peter Kadzis, what did you make of all of this, what Presley said, what the governor said, and then the response that his comments engendered? Well, let me try to take that in order. I mean, uh, as Presley made clear, identity politics have been with it, with us in many different shapes and forms. Um, uh, at the turn of the century, in a particularly destructive form, you had uh, Harvard President Abbott Lawrence Lowell, who was bigoted not so much against the Irish but against Catholics. It's an important distinction. And uh, Mayor James Michael Curley, who in a very Trumpian way knew how to um, mobilize uh, feelings against um, Wasp Boston, Brahmin Boston, Yankee Boston. Um, you know, th 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 that was a time wh where there was real, real clash. Um, I don't know, listening to an extended clip here, I think Philip was right. Um, he, he slipped or he popped off. He was certainly, to my ear, overly jocular. He sounds guilty to me of violating John Henry Newman's uh, warning in his piece about being a gentleman. Uh, he uh, committed what Newman called blundering discourtesy. And I think because Baker realized that, they, he personally apologized, his office officially apologized, and the rest is a manifestation or an illustration of just how unstable um, the, the political baselines are in a, in a state like Massachusetts, which is relatively civil compared to the nation at whole. There's another wrinkle here, which is that, Philip, after you sent your tweet describing what the governor, or reporting what the governor said, uh, Rachel Rollins, the Suffolk County DA, who has feuded publicly with the Baker administration in the past, I believe cited your tweet and went hard at the Baker administration for his comments. And uh, explain a little more what her critique was of Baker that she used these comments to, to sort of springboard into. Yeah, she used the she used the comments to basically make some substantive observations about the the Baker administration. She says, "You want to hear a rant? I'm rant. What about uh, <laughs> what about uh, the fact that you only have three of uh, uh, black members of your cabinet?" Then she pointed out the various disparities of uh, the difference between the rhetoric and the actual um, uh, performance of the Baker administration in terms of race relations, in terms of appointments, in terms of a, of a, a number of things. But she also it, it pointed out, and I think it is important for us to reiterate this, that she said words matter. In that in the context of the Martin Luther King breakfast, a day that we're talking about not just race relations, but progress and historical analyses, uh, that uh, the governor had chose to essentially minimize the words of a black woman. Uh, this is Rollins' assessment was that you, when you hear uh, the, the impassioned and the 
uh, the focus, the comments of, um, of Ayanna Presley, and then to reduce it, and, and I, th I think this is what she was talking about, reductionism, reduce it to a rant that you've basically taken every stereotype uh, about black women, uh, strong black women, and reduced it to a, uh, a term of, uh, that's considered emotionally volatile. Given her history with the Baker administration that they sparred before over her policies publicly and then put that to bed, were you surprised to see her call the governor out in the way she did? I was surprised. Um, but she was joined by others, Mar Healy. Uh, uh, there were uh, the uh, members of the Boston City Council. Um, uh, various people called out the governor uh, on this issue. I would say Rollins was by far the the strongest and the, if you will, the most vociferous response to what the, the governors uh, had said. So, Peter, let me ask you in closing, and Philip, I'd love your thoughts on this, too. Is this the, the end of this? Are we, you know, tying this up with our conversation here or, you know, discussing it at a time when it is fading out? Or is this going to linger in some way and cast a, a shadow over Massachusetts politics? I, I don't know how to answer that. It's not casting any shadow. It will come up again as a weapon. I mean, um, here we come again, Adam, to one of my favorite themes. Politics is about friends and enemies. And Carl ba Schmidt. Yeah. Baker, you know, again, you know, was guilty of blundering discourtesy. Um, you can only expect his enemies to try to maximize that. Um, again, it's clear to me from the, the, his tone, from the clip Philip just played, um, that the problem here is not a heck of a lot of thought went into it. Now, some people will say, well, that's even worse because he's channeling his inner self. You know, it, it's awfully dangerous ground. This will come up again, and if he runs for a third term, you might see attack ads based around it. So... Um, that's my take. Philip, I see you well, nodding as it, Peter wraps up. Well, I, th I think Peter's right. I think if the Twitterati has its way, that uh, this will linger uh, because of the very point that Peter was making about enemies. Uh, and that, uh, as we've seen, there have been uh, many, many retweets of, uh, of, of, these, of this comment, uh, either retweeting me or retweeting others who were there. Uh, and... So there is a there is certainly would be used by his uh, his political enemies uh, to continue to score points. Just a, a, a footnote to Philip's point, as the Outlook section of The New York Times has reported and analyzed from several different directions, Twitter is not representative of the general public or, more importantly, the electorate. I think it is representative here of Baker's enemies. All right. Fact of life. On that note, Philip Martin, thanks for talking with us about uh, this and for your coverage. Adam, Peter, thank you. Appreciate it. Great. With that, now onto that conversation I mentioned earlier in which Peter spoke with me and Soraya Wintersmith about our time tracking Deval Patrick and Governor Bill Weld. Adam, you and I are getting old. I mean, we have known Deval Patrick since the beginning of his political career or his elected political career. Yeah, going back to 2005, I guess. And you have the distinction of being one of the first wave of political reporters who really saw the potential in the electability of Deval Patrick, as opposed to me, who was your editor at, at the time, although I... I 
I think relatively quickly came around. Yeah, we should. Is it? I, I can't remember if we've discussed this story before, but I went after Frank Phillips wrote a piece about Patrick thinking about getting in the, the race and sat down with him at the Omni Parker House for like an hour and a half. And I came back and wrote up what I thought was a dispassionate piece. And he said, well, I see you've drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and I kind of bristled at that. And he said, no, it's okay. Sometimes it happens. And yeah, maybe you were right. No, you, you spotted something. But again, you were up close and personal. You saw Deval Patrick face-to-face, toe-to-toe. Um, some listeners may remember that I have often characterized Deval Patrick's um, effect in person as he's the Cary Grant of Massachusetts politics. Of course, a lot of people come back at me and say, <laughs> who's Cary Grant? But um, uh, former Governor Patrick knows there's a compliment intended there. How did you find him on the campaign trail? He made a similar impression on me to the one that he made, what, 15 years ago. When I went to follow him, I was feeling very skeptical. I'd seen, you know, seen him when he filed papers and and thought, oh, okay, you know, yeah, it's the former governor. He can be really good at this. But I was sort of... He was a little curmudgeonly then. He he was a little crusty, telling me and a couple other reporters to back off when we tried to capture him having an exchange with voters at an event that was billed as Deval Patrick has an exchange with voters. But (laughs) so it goes. Um, I I wasn't really, I guess, feeling the Patrick magic in a fresh way when I was watching him file papers and, and go around after that. But in this little junket that I went on or this swing through New Hampshire that I followed him at, I was reminded of how terrific he can be. And it is really, as you said, it's based on, I shouldn't say it's only based on this, because his speech at the last Democratic convention was incredible and a a testament to how good he can be when he's sort of in full order mode. uh, Better than his friend, former President Obama. Obama. Yeah. Yeah. But what he was doing in New Hampshire, and I don't know if it's a smart thing to be doing at this point with the primary so close, but it's he's so big on give and take between candidate and voter. He he is a natural interviewer. He turns to audiences and says, well, you know, let me ask you what you think about that. Or, or, you know, tell me where you're from and tell me about your vantage point, given where you're from on this particular issue. And he does it in a way, maybe it's BS, but he does it in a way that makes you convinced he genuinely, deeply wants to believe what that particular individual has to say on this topic at this point in time. And when he has it going, it is just incredibly effective. And I think he actually believes that it's not just a way for him to try to get whatever elected office he's seeking. I think he believes that in approaching politics this way, he's he's creating a model for people of what civic dialogue is supposed to be. Let me actually play a little bit of sound that I got when... After his last event on the swing that I tracked him at in New Hampshire, I asked him to size up how it had gone and the state of his campaign. I think it gets right to what we're talking about here. How do you feel about the state of your campaign right now in New Hampshire after this swing? I always feel good at and after um, these kinds of things because, you know, I'm meeting, I'm meeting people. They are attentive. They ask, uh, they ask probing questions. Um, they, uh, they challenge me like Ed did um, uh, tonight. Um, and I think, you know, we need to model a, a, a politics that says, as I said, we don't have to agree on everything before we work together on anything. You saw that there were a bunch of things that even he and I um, could uh, 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 
to agree on and could agree on. And by the way, that is how you get change that lasts. And I don't, you know, there is no, there is no other way to get things that stick. Ed, by the way, is this uh, gun rights guy who did not like Deval Patrick's backing of a ban on assault weapons. And he read out some statistics about violent crime and assault weapon bans or lack of bans and pressed Patrick on why do you think this is a good idea. And Patrick spent, I would say, five to ten minutes going back and forth with this guy, trying to find areas where they could potentially have common ground. And some of us in the audience were kind of rolling our eyes like, we just move on? But he really wanted to do this. And you hear why. Yeah, as we record, this morning um, there was a release of the latest um, Suffolk, Boston Globe, New Hampshire poll. And uh, Bernie Sanders topped the list. But most important of all, Deval Patrick really didn't score. Now, I I throw that out not as a put-down, but as sort of a reality shock. Listening to what Deval said to you was, in, in many ways, you know, vintage Deval Patrick. But to, to my ear, um, it, it sounds like someone who knows he's not really in the game, um, but is very conscious of trying to do something. Am I off base in saying that, Adam? Or? Uh, I, I mean, it, it's always tough to take a crack at what's going on in someone's head. I, that's very plausible sounding to me. I mean, he's an extremely smart man. He knows what it's like to run a gubernatorial campaign that no one thinks he has a chance to win and to catch fire in a way that we only know, you know, we've seen this happen from the outside. He's lived it, you know, convincing people that he's not this sort of absurd proposition politically, but that he's actually the candidate they want to back. And my gut is that he's not experiencing that in New Hampshire right now. So he's saying, you know, the right things about how people are going to make up their minds very late in this process. I'm connecting with a lot of voters. But I I would guess he knows he's probably not headed toward a strong showing unless something really surprising happens. No, although um, a strong showing for Patrick doesn't have to be one, two, or three. If he managed to come in four or five, that would certainly raise eyebrows uh, because of his late entries. Interestingly enough, that Suffolk Globe poll... um, does play into a point Patrick makes rather frequently when skeptics like myself question him. He points out that about one in four New Hampshire voters don't know who they're voting for. Yeah, he does. And again, the gut, how do you potentially see that playing out? I would be surprised if Deval Patrick managed to get over 5%. Uh, I mean, even that. I'd be stunned if he got to 5%. I think the problem is that he is extremely effective campaigning in the mode that we just heard him uh, campaign or talked about him campaigning. But it's really late for this, right? The other candidates have moved on to a different stage. Now it's about, you know, the big rallies, the get out the vote operation, whatever. And he's campaigning as if it was a year ago. And he's really good at it, but it's not a year ago. So I'm not bullish on him making an impact. But if you gave me a day to follow him around, I'd probably come back and tell you that I, you know, (laughs) that I thought he could shock the world once again. You'd have another glass of Kool-Aid. I might well. Well, listen, let's talk Trump for a second. Um, how does former Governor Patrick deal with 
you know, the great beast in the he White doesn't, House. He doesn't talk about him much. All the other Democrats running seem to me to think that Trump presents this unique threat to American democracy. And I didn't get the impression, watching Patrick over the course of a few days, that he feels the same way. He doesn't mention Trump by name, but he also, I think more importantly, doesn't convey this sense that if we stay on the course we're on, um, the country could be screwed. He, you just don't get that sense of drama and direness from him. So I asked Patrick at the end of that same event that we heard a little from earlier, are you concerned that Donald Trump represents an existential threat to American democracy, or are you not? The answer is, of course we are. That's exactly what the democracy agenda is about. But I don't think that beating Donald Trump is enough, and that's the point. Because if all we have on offer is replacing him with a Democrat and going back to do what, doing what we used to do, it doesn't meet the moment. This crisis is also an opportunity, and it's an opportunity that presents itself periodically in our history, and I tried to talk about it tonight, where we can reinvent the country so that prosperity and justice uh, exists everywhere, and we should be up to that task. Otherwise, I think we miss the moment. Now, that is the eloquence I expect from Deval Patrick. To me, it sounds like his message is similar to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, referencing the need for change. But um, it's almost more spiritual. He's calling on us to reconnect with our better selves. Yeah, you're, you're completely right about that. There's this message of moral uplift or regeneration. And I actually found myself thinking, as I watched him, you know, if, if the presidential thing doesn't work out, I would not be stunned in two years to learn that Deval Patrick was becoming a minister. Because, and I'm not kidding at all, I think there's such a profound moral component to the way that he approaches politics. Um, he's not in politics for its own sake at this point, I don't think. He's in politics as a moral project. And there's other ways to achieve those sort of ends. Adam, I think that's going to be tough to top. So why don't we close the book temporarily, at least, on Deval Patrick at this point, and move on to the other Massachusetts former governor who is running on the Republican field, uh, Bill Weld. Um, Soraya, you're not from here. Uh, Adam and I were reminiscing about the early days of covering Deval Patrick. You're relatively new to New England, um, and you're brand new to Bill Weld. What did it feel like to be up in New Hampshire with Weld? I'm approaching Weld when I went to go shadow with so much curiosity, because when you talk to older folks who remember him as a governor, there are so many like little side stories about how he got so much support and got so many votes as a governor. There's just lots of things that people remember about him. And yes, as an outsider, I was just curious, like who, who is this guy that's going to challenge this kind of popular sitting president? But I found that he was talking to smaller groups uh, for the whole day that I shadowed him, you know, whereas you see other popular candidates filling out stadiums or big assembly crowds. He was talking to some folks at a law office that was arranged by a co-chair of his campaign. And then he went to talk to a college convention event 
uh, filled with a bunch of students, many of whom were probably going to make their presidential selection for the first time. And I got to say, I didn't see or hear much connection. Almost everyone that I talked to that day after both events, in typical New Hampshire fashion, were saying they just wanted to have an open mind and listen, (laughs) hear what he had to say. But I didn't find that one person that said, yes, he has my vote. After hearing him talk about his policies and what he wants to accomplish and why he thinks Trump is fomenting a constitutional crisis, I couldn't find anybody that said, yes, Weld is my guy. And I think that's pretty telling. So you did not drink the Weld (laughs) Kool-Aid. I did not. You you know, just to relate a story, um, when Adam Zoe, Zoe's a new producer, by the way, for people who are tuning in. Um, When we went to see the uh, former publisher of the New Hampshire Union leader, we ran into Bill Weld coming into the the newspaper. He's no doubt seeking their endorsement, which could really mean something to him uh, in a small sort of way, but an important way. And I I hollered across the parking lot, hey, Big Red, and he sort of (laughs) chuckled because he said, geez, I haven't heard that in years. And at the time, I didn't make the connection, but listening to you, I think there is a real um, gap between people like me who remember Weld when he was a major figure and younger voters like you to whom Weld is a name and a reputation but not a real person necessarily. Am I wrong in saying that? No, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. Um, Most of the college students that I went and chatted with at that second event, they were hearing him for the first time and experiencing him for the first time like I was. Now, when, when I see Weld on national television or when I hear... Um, the cable talking heads refer to him. The context is always Bill Weld, fervent anti-Trumper. Did you pick up on any of that in New Hampshire? So talking to him separate from his events, he would talk about doubting the president's understanding of foreign policy or the problem with the president bringing up trade wars. But at the college convention event, it struck me that he stopped short of being critical of Trump with respect to racism. I'm aware that he has used the term racist to describe the president before. uh, But at this college convention, he used almost all of the words dog whistle, stoking fear, anti-immigrant, but wouldn't use that word to describe the president. And that kind of struck me. It, it sounds to me, to put it in commercial terms, that he didn't ask for the sale. He didn't really draw the distinction between himself and Trump, although he made it clear there was a distinction. Am I correct in that? You or? are correct. So here's a piece of audio of him answering a question on immigration. I, I think it re- applies to guest worker programs and immigration more broadly. Yeah, I've long said that we need uh, much more robust guest worker programs such as uh, Canada has, which uh, works uh, very well for Canada and for the people who apply. We need more work visas, uh, not fewer. 
Yeah, there should be uh, paths uh, to citizenship for people who are here the requisite number of years and uh, uh, who've been uh, contributing uh, to our country. Uh, and, but, I, but I think it's kind of a canard, kind of a false issue, what Mr. Trump often says, that there are 11 million people, illegal aliens, he calls them, instead of people whose visas have expired, which is what most of them are, uh, who are clamoring to be citizens uh, immediately. I think that's a false issue designed to, a false claim, designed to sow resentment and fear. Yeah, there should be a path, but it doesn't mean that there are 11 million people who suddenly have to be citizens jumping ahead of line of anybody else, everybody else. After the event, I talked to Kelsey Pirine, who asked Governor Weld the question, and she was not impressed. I was basically asking that if for those guest workers who do want to become a citizen of the country, would they be able to have a more accessible option in, as far as a pathway to citizenship? So I'm not really sure if I was satisfied with his answer um, because I believe that he kind of just bounced around the question and not really answered. He said that we should have a better system, but he didn't really answer if the system would be more accessible, if it would be easier um, to accomplish and those kinds of things. So, Listen, let me both ask you a question, and th th this analogy is a little sloppy, but Adam, it sounds like you you drank from a half-full glass, <laughs> and Soraya, you're sipping from a half-empty glass. That is an elegant way to put it. I, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't not drink any Kool-Aid, but I didn't drink all the Kool-Aid, so yeah, that, your analogy checks out. And I drank more Kool-Aid than I would have expected. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go with that metaphor. I would not. I would not. I can see that Weld is a very sharp, smart guy, obviously in his head a lot. Um, it's just in talking to voters, like, I, I don't see a connection. I... And you can tell when it happens, right? I mean, you can feel it. Yeah, there was not that electric. I think you came back with some tape of somebody after an event who was just like, oh, my gosh. He's the one I've been waiting so for. So impressed. Right. And you talked to a lady who said, yeah, maybe he'll be in my lineup of people that I can. So I didn't even get like a maybe. Most of the people that I got were like, I'm just glad that he's out there offering <laughs> an alternative. Good for him. Don't you you just triggered an interesting thought with me. Weld is sort of a famous gamesman. I mean, I think he's used to being usually, if not the smartest person in the room, close to the smartest. That's why I'd like to see Deval Patrick and Weld in the same room, because they both share that trait. Um, but there is something more abstract about Weld these days. A couple of weeks ago, I was seated next to him on Joe Matthews' show, Morning Edition, and... I, too, came away. We were talking about impeachment, and he reminded us all that he had played a role in both impeachments mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of, of uh, the attempt at Nixon before Nixon resigned and the ultimate impeachment of uh, President Clinton. Um, he was intellectually so on target, but there was a remoteness. There, there was almost a lack of emotional connect there. And um, I think you're hitting it right on the head. People who are so smart and so into books and jurisprudence. And again, obviously, when he talks, he is super smart and super knowledgeable. I don't know that that reaches the average person who's just like, hey, tax policy, more money in my pocket. 
Well, and for what it's worth, I interviewed him at the Boston Public Library at our studio there a couple months back, and I thought it was weird that I would tee him up to talk about an issue that my understanding was he felt passionately about, and he would give sort of a brief answer and then kind of smile, like, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just thinking, that's it? Mm-hmm. You know, come on, give me a little more and, and say it like you mean it mm-hmm. because I'm not feeling it from the answer you just gave me. And that happened a few times. It was weird. Yeah, it's almost as if he's in the game, but he doesn't want to play the game. He does, however, want to win the game. Before we close, I want to ask Soraya about um, Iowa, where she'll be going to cover the the uh, Iowa caucuses. Um, what are you looking forward to? You've been out to Iowa before. I have. As, as Adam. But when you go out there, what are you going to be looking for? This year, the caucus process is changing. I'm really excited to be on the ground with respect to the Democratic Party. Um, They're going to put out for the first time three sets of numbers. They're going to let people see what they suppose is the uh, equivalent of the number of delegates that each person will get based on the end of the caucus. They will release the number of how things shook out during the first alignment when they first asked people, okay, go stand with your people in your corner. And they'll also show how things shook out when they asked for a realignment period. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see which candidates had people on the ground to make an effective case uh, if they didn't reach viability on first alignment and if they were able to pull people to their team so that they could reach viability at the end. I think that says a lot about who is strong on the ground there. That's a very good point. What Soraya is referring to is that in the Iowa caucuses, if a candidate on the first round of voting um, doesn't reach 15 percent, those candidates are um, dropped from the ballot and the voting proceeds. It's um, not the same but not unlike proportional representation voting in Cambridge. Um, It's a very... uh, Midwestern populist good government way of doing things. Um, Well, I wish you luck, and I'm going to turn the reins of this wagon back over to Adam. And I, in turn, will say that that's going to do it for another episode of The Scrum. Thanks to Philip Martin for joining us, also to Soraya Wintersmith for chatting with Peter and me. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. I've got to ask you, as I do every time, to subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already and to rate us if you haven't yet done that. And I can't stress enough that we really would like to hear from you if you think we're getting things right, if you think we're getting things wrong, or if you think there are subjects we should be covering that we are not. You can get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I am at Riley Adam and Peter at Kansas. Our producer is Zoe Matthews. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker. We also got crucial production help from Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.